Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 15, To the Ends of the Earth. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, we'll be talking about a saint whose name belongs among the greatest explorers of the Age of Discovery with Columbus, Magellan, and Vasco da Gama, but who went adventuring around the world not for gold or his own glory, but for the good of countless souls. This is the story of the patron of all Christian missionaries, St. Francis Xavier. Francisco de Jasso y Adpilicueta was born the younger son of a noble family at his ancestral castle, of Javier, which looks like Xavier in English, on the 7th of April, 1506. Despite the sound of his name, he wasn't actually Spanish. The house of Xavier belonged to a country that no longer exists, the Kingdom of Navarre, an independent nation in the Pyrenees Mountains between France and Spain, which was ethnically Basque. The Basque people, as you may know, are unique in Europe for their distinctive language, a linguistic isolates left over from the Stone Age before the coming of the Indo-Europeans, and unrelated to any other living language. St. Francis' name in Basque, incidentally, is Francisco Xavier Coa. There's a reason it sounds so little like Spanish. Though culturally Catholic, the Basque have always been proud of their differences from their Spanish and French neighbors. For hundreds of years in the Middle Ages, the Basque realm of Navarre managed to retain its liberty, despite the efforts of Spanish, French, and Muslim interlopers. But, with the arrival of gunpowder in European warfare, the age of tiny kingdoms bravely holding their own against great powers was coming to an end. Francis grew up during the Spanish invasion of Navarre, the wars that would annex the lands of the Basque to the Spanish crown of Aragon, bringing them under Spanish control down to the present day. Incidentally, the king who launched this invasion in the year 1512 was the famous Ferdinand II of Aragon, whose marriage to Isabella of Castile created the Kingdom of Spain as we know it. As I'm sure most American listeners know, the very same Ferdinand and Isabella had been the patrons of Christopher Columbus back in 1492. The wars between Aragon and Navarre were traumatic for St. Francis and his family. He lost his father during the invasion, and after his brothers took up arms for the doomed cause of Navarre, the family was punished by having its castle demolished by the Spanish conquerors. Only a small family home remained of the once mighty Xavier Castle. The fighting would continue for nearly two decades, but in the end, Navarre was partitioned by the victorious Spanish, 
who took most of the country for themselves, and left only its fragments of an independent realm north of the Pyrenees. The war was lost, but as terrible as it was for his family, Francis had never been destined for a life in politics. As a younger son from a noble house, his career lay with the church. So in 1525, at the age of 19, Francis packed up his bags and was sent to study at the University of Paris, one of the oldest and most prestigious institutions of learning in Europe. He was evidently a dashing young man, and developed a reputation as an athlete while he pursued his studies. In 1529, four years into his education, Francis fell in with a new roommate. A roommate you've probably heard of. His name was Saint Ignatius de Loyola, a war veteran 15 years his senior, and also a son of the Basque country, though he came from the Spanish side. As you probably know, Ignatius had once been a swashbuckling soldier, but he underwent a profound conversion to the religious life after a cannonball broke one of his legs. In his convalescence, he had studied the life of Christ and received visions, calling him to a new path. Ignatius and Francis became close friends, and under the influence of the former, the latter grew in his devotion to Christ. When, in 1534, Ignatius invited Francis to join a group of seven men taking vows of poverty, celibacy, and commitment to the salvation of others, Francis eagerly accepted. But he could not have known that he had just become a founding member of one of the greatest brotherhoods in the history of the Church. Using the spiritual exercises of his friend Ignatius as a guide for growing in faith, Francis completed his studies over the next few years, and reconvened with his new companions at Venice, in 1537. There, on the 24th of June, he was ordained a priest. Ignatius wanted to take the company, all now priests, on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, but they had trouble obtaining passage, perhaps because of the dicey political situation with the Ottoman Empire, which controlled the Eastern Mediterranean. So instead of going on pilgrimage, the brothers placed themselves at the service of the Pope, Paul III, and set about ministering to the poor and the sick in the papal states of central Italy. Their preaching and charity won them fame, and they began to draw attention from other powerful men. Most importantly, King João III of Portugal. Over the last few decades, the Portuguese had assembled a massive naval empire, stretching from Brazil through Africa all the way to India and Southeast Asia. Calling it an empire is perhaps a little misleading, as it was really a series of trading ports and spice plantations along the coasts of these far-flung lands, rather than a political power. But it was quite an enterprise all the same. The only cultural glue that could hold these territories together was the Catholic faith, which had often been planted among the locals for political reasons before being left untended. 
But Joao III was a different kind of monarch. Not merely a cynical merchant prince, but a deeply religious king, with a real concern for the souls of his subjects. He's often called Joao the Pious. For that reason, he asked the Pope for missionaries, who would not just introduce Christianity to the peoples of the wider world, but actually foster the faith. It was a task of special importance in the East, where, unlike in the New World, there were already ancients, organized, and powerful religions, like Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, ready to absorb lukewarm Christians. The Pope recognized the problem, and replied with Ignatius and his brothers. Ignatius himself had plenty of work to do in Europe. This was, after all, the height of the Protestant Reformation, and there was a pressing need for Catholic priests to teach the faithful, rebuke heresy, and heal the wounds of Christendom. So he assigned one of his companions to take charge of King Joao's mission to Asia as papal nuncio. That's the emissary of the Pope. But that priest fell sick right before he was about to depart, and so, in one of history's providential twists, Francis was chosen to take his place. With hardly a day's notice, Francis obeyed, and set forth from Portugal on a ship to India on the 15th of March, 1540. While Francis was undertaking the taxing two-year voyage, back in Europe, the Pope officially recognized Ignatius and his companions as the Society of Jesus, known for all time as the Jesuits. Francis, now truly a Jesuit, finally landed at Goa, the main Portuguese colony on the west coast of India, in 1542. He immediately set about his work in the Tamil-speaking territories near the southern tip of the subcontinents. The Portuguese had introduced Christianity to those areas in the previous decade, but they'd promptly ignored their new Catholic brothers and sisters. The conversions had been largely political, driven by the desire of certain Tamil rulers to curry favor, no pun intended, with Portuguese merchants, so the converts had received little in the way of religious instruction or access to the sacraments. When Francis arrived in the south of India, he found more than 20,000 souls among the Parava people, poor Tamil fishermen and pearl divers, who had been baptized, but otherwise forgotten. Even though he did not yet speak the language, Francis worked through an interpreter to translate a short Catholic catechism into Tamil, which he then carried with him as he visited the villages of the region. For the next several years, he traveled around the tropical shores of southern India as a preacher, teacher, and minister to the poor. His charismatic personality and his evident holiness won him many followers, both among those who had already been converted and among those who had never learned of the faith. By 1544, he had personally baptized around 10,000 people. It was fitting, then, that he eventually got to travel to Mylapore, 
part of modern-day Madras or Chennai, on the east coast, to visit the tomb of the very first Christian who had carried the faith to India 1,500 years earlier, St. Thomas the Apostle. As you can probably guess, the Hindu and Muslim authorities were far from pleased. The itinerant preacher was attacked several times by the agents of those dominant faiths. Most famously, when Francis was working in Travancore on the southwest coast, his hut was burned down repeatedly, and he was forced to hide in a tree. The poorer castes of Tamil society had taken to the faith with zeal, but the ruling Brahmins would prove a trickier case. Despite this violent opposition, Francis managed to spread the faith among tens of thousands of souls across Portuguese India. And he did so not in a superficial way. He founded schools to carry on his legacy, ensuring that the parts of India which he had helped to convert would remain deeply Catholic down to the present day. As an instructor, he also took charge of the College of Holy Faith in Goa, training priests, both European and Indian, to serve the whole Goa diocese, which covered the entire Indian Ocean, from the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, all the way through India and Southeast Asia to China. Which brings us to the rest of his missions. India was St. Francis' greatest success, but he also tried to introduce the faith to Indonesia, Japan, and China. In the span of just a few years, he planted seeds across Asia that would grow into thriving Christian communities. Communities that were only snuffed out after decades of brutal persecution. In Southeast Asia, he began preaching at the Portuguese colony of Malacca, in modern-day Indonesia, before touring the other islands of the Malay, to spread the faith among their people. As with India, he won many converts among the poor, despite the hostility of the Muslim and pagan elites. Japan, however, was a different story. Europeans had first made contact with the Japanese just six years before Francis arrived in Japan in 1549. That makes him not only the first missionary to the Japanese, but also one of the earliest Christians to set foot on the islands. Francis had taken interest in Japan while staying in Malacca, where he met a Buddhist man named Anjiro, who had fallen into depression after slaying a rival in a brawl. Deeply remorseful of his crime, Andrew found peace in the mercy of Christ, and accepted baptism after befriending Francis. He told the great missionary about his fabled homeland, the Empire of the Rising Sun, whose people were highly cultured, but had never heard of Christ. Seeing a chance to bring the faith to an entirely new corner of the globe, Francis set sail for Japan with Anjiro as his translator. Francis fell in love with the Japanese. He deeply admired their honor and courtesy, 
calling them the best people yet discovered. At the same time, however, he struggled to win converts, because many of the traits of a Christian saint, which had attracted the common people in other countries, especially his apostolic poverty and preference for the poor, were distasteful to the Japanese, with their sense of propriety and deference to the elite. Even so, he managed to baptize around 2,000 people over two years of preaching, and he was not deterred by his tepid reception. Realizing the importance of hierarchy and respect for authority among the Japanese, in 1551, he sought an audience with the emperor in Kyoto to try to convert Japan from the top down. Unfortunately, he was denied a hearing. He did not give up on Japan, but since he had spent two years without any news from the outside world, he thought it best to return briefly to India, leaving his companions in charge of the small Christian communities he had founded on the islands. On his way back to India, a storm forced Francis to land on an island near Guangzhou, off the south coast of China. There, he bumped into an old friend, a Portuguese merchant by the name of Diogo Pereira, whom he'd met in India years before. While they were stuck in ports waiting for the storm to pass, Pereira showed him a letter from a group of Christians in China who had been imprisoned for their faith. Unlike Japan, there had been small pockets of Christianity in China for centuries, despite the Ming Dynasty's policy of isolation from the outside world. Though no doubt moved by their plight, Francis knew there was little he could do for those persecuted Christians at the moment, but he was determined to act when he had the means. Arriving back in Goa, he came up with a plan to free the Christians of China and spread the faith among their people. As papal nuncio, he believed he could gain a hearing with the Ming emperor if Pereira joined him as ambassador for the king of Portugal. Before embarking on this journey, Francis wrote a letter to Ignatius, now superior general of the Jesuits back in Europe, which has survived to this day. Here's an excerpt dated the 9th of April, 1552. Six days from now, with the help and favor of God our Lord, three of us of the society, two priests and one lay brother, are going to the courts of the King of China, which is near Japan, a land that is extremely large and inhabited by a very gifted race and by many scholars. From this information that I received, they are greatly devoted to learning, and the more learned one is, the more noble and esteemed he is. All the paganism of the sects in Japan has come from China. We are going with great confidence in God our Lord, that his name will be manifested in China. Sadly, despite his best efforts, Francis would never make it to mainland China. He arrived on the Isle of Shangchuan, off the south coast later that year, but struggled to find passage to the mainland, as the dragon throne 
had closed its empire to foreigners. While waiting on Shang Chuan, he took ill with a fever and died on the 3rd of December, 1552. There have been few saints in the whole history of the Church as adventurous as St. Francis Xavier. I mentioned at the beginning that he belongs among the canon of great explorers from the Age of Discovery, but frankly, I can't think of anyone who came close to his life of travel and heroism. Even Magellan died in the Philippines before he could reach India, and he never dreamed of trying for China or Japan. It just goes to show how far God can take you when you give yourself to his service. The greatest adventurer of that swashbuckling era was not a pirate or profiteer, but a priest. As for his legacy, it's hard to know where to start. St. Francis Xavier was the reverend apostle of too many communities to count across India and East Asia. He and his Jesuit brothers had a broader impact on global Christianity than any other order in church history, hands down. Even his long-term failures do him much credit. In Japan, for instance, the seeds planted by Francis over two short years would grow into a Christian community of more than half a million souls by the end of the 16th century. It was only with the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate and the horrifying persecution of Japanese Christians by their governments, a story for another time, that the faith would be driven underground in that so-called land of the gods. Elsewhere, as in much of India, the mission was an unmitigated success. Francis was recognized as a saint in his own lifetime, and was canonized in 1622, less than a century after his death. Over the years, his relics were translated from his initial place of burial, a simple beach on the island of Shangchuan, to Malacca, and then finally to Goa, where they rest to this day in the Basilica of Bom Jesus. St. Francis Xavier is commemorated on the 3rd of December in the Catholic Church. He is the patron of dozens, maybe hundreds of places around the world, as well as being the patron of all Catholic missionaries. As the saint who carried Christianity to the ends of the earth, he is rightly known by many titles. Apostle of the Indies, Apostle of the Far East, Apostle of China, and Apostle of Japan. He is also the subject of many Catholic devotions, most famously the Novena of Grace, to which I've included a link in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, before we close today's episode, I would like to thank those of you who have contributed to the show's Patreon. It's a big help, and I'm very grateful. I'll be taking questions for our upcoming Q&A episode from all listeners for the rest of this year. So whether or not you're a patron, you're warmly invited to send an email to the address listed in the show notes. Questions can be about anything you like, 
in the vast world of church history. I look forward to hearing from you. All the very best as we approach the start of Advents. May St. Francis Xavier, Apostle of Asia and Holy Adventurer, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thank you.